Hello, and welcome once again to the TriDoc Podcast. My name is Jeff Sankoff, and I'm an emergency physician, multiple Ironman finisher, and as the host of this show, the TriDoc, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I have another great show for you today. Podcaster, YouTube personality, triathlete, and coach Matt Legrand joins me for a discussion on breaking down the barriers to entry to triathlon. How can more people get into a sport that is often perceived as too hard or too expensive? While you would think that there is still time for more Reels for Wheels segments, given the tenacity of this endless winter we seem to be caught in, believe it or not, race season really is just about upon us. And so today I am introducing a new segment to the show, one in which I will be joined by a guest to discuss a different race on the Ironman calendar to give some insight on logistics, the course itself, and places to stay and things to see and do while you are there. Today, for the first installment, Team Everyman Jack member Sean Hale from Houston, Texas, joins me to discuss the Eagleman 70.3 and Ironman Maryland races in Cambridge, Maryland. But before all that, I have a medical issue to discuss. Maybe you are like so many other triathletes who has to struggle to balance their training and work and family lives. Maybe from time to time you find yourself tired and unable to find the energy to manage your workouts and you just can't understand what's going on. Are you sick? Are you injured? Or could you be suffering from some of your glands simply being overworked and fatigued? Or does such a thing even exist? Well, that's the subject of my deeper dive on this episode, and I'll be getting to that in just a second. For now, let me just take a moment once again to thank everyone who has taken the time to leave a rating or a review wherever you download this podcast. If you haven't yet done so, I hope I can get you to consider to do it, as it really does help to get this show to more ears. Now, on to the medical question. The internet is a wonderful place, full of discovery, rabbit holes to go down, and videos of double rainbows. Unfortunately, though, along with all of the good, I know that I'm not going to be the first to tell you that the internet brings with it a whole lot of bad. Think anonymous comments on those adorable kitten videos on YouTube. Worse than that, of course, are the range of conspiracy theories related to all manner of things that can end up having real-world consequences. The best example of that recently are the multiple measles outbreaks that have happened in this year alone in the United States, a first-world country with good sanitation, health care, and a high standard of living. Because of the preposterous fear-mongering drivel that high-profile anti-vaccine charlatans have propagated online, a previously eradicated, potentially lethal disease in children has made a heretofore unthinkable comeback. But that's a subject for another podcast. For this episode, I do need to dive into the depths of the shadowy spaces of disinformation on the interwebs to explore pseudoscience and quackery in other forms. Today's TriDoc Health Exploration didn't come so much from a specific listener question, but rather as a result of an observation. I've seen a lot of casual references made to an illness that I was never taught about in medical school. At first, I just brushed it off as silliness, and yet one more example of uninformed folks with a constellation of common symptoms trying to find a name for what ailed them. But I, came, but I became alarmed when I saw a video in a course that I was taking when no less than Mark Allen lent credence to this made-up disease by claiming it was the cause of one of his athletes' declining performance and training. And it was then that I decided that I needed to set the record straight for you, my listeners. And so today, I'm going to discuss, and hopefully once and for all, convince any of you who might think otherwise that adrenal fatigue is nothing more than a made-up disease designed to do nothing more than generate income for those who continue to insist that it is something else. First, though, let's spend a little time talking about the glands that are at the root of this whole non-controversy. 
Lying atop each of your kidneys are these small glands that play an outsized role in the endocrine system in relation to their actual physical size. Because they were found adjacent to the renal organs, they were named the adrenal glands, as in adjacent to the kidneys. But one could easily have named the kidneys for being adjacent to the glands themselves, because an argument could easily be made for their possessing an equal importance when it comes to sustaining life. The adrenal glands have two primary functions and one secondary function. The primary functions are to secrete the hormones cortisol and aldosterone, as well as the fight-or-flight stress response agent adrenaline. The secondary function of the adrenals is to produce small quantities of male sex hormones, testosterone and dihydrotestosterone. And yes, before you ask, this is in both men and women. Now, the amount of sex hormones being produced by the adrenals is actually very small, but it's nonetheless important. When a fetus is developing in utero, it's actually these very small quantities of sex hormones that will initiate the process of male differentiation in boys. Later in life, these hormones are less important, but are still responsible for the development of secondary sex characteristics in both men and women, such as pubic and axillary hair. Adrenaline, the fight-or-flight agent, is a very potent vasoactive agent. Under conditions of sudden physical or emotional stress, the adrenals will release this chemical into the blood and its effects are instantaneous with an increase in heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate, as well as an increase in sweating. Essentially, adrenaline is preparing the body to deal with whatever is facing it by preparing all of the systems for fight or flight, whichever the person chooses to do. But the really critical functions of the adrenals relate to the production of the main hormones that the adrenals secrete on a near-continuous basis. Cortisol is critical to many bodily functions and has important effects on immune function, sugar control, blood pressure, and neurologic function, just to name a few. Aldosterone, on the other hand, is critical for the maintenance of sodium and water balance and is required for normal blood pressure. Now, there are conditions where the adrenal glands may become diseased or cease to function properly. Most commonly, this is because of an autoimmune destruction of the glands called Addison's disease, but other causes include infections like tuberculosis or hemorrhage into the gland as is seen in cases of overwhelming sepsis like meningococcal meningitis. Prior to the 1950s, adrenal insufficiency was uniformly fatal because there was no way to replace the hormones that the adrenals produce, and in their absence, the slightest stress, like a mild infection, would result in a complete collapse of the body's cardiovascular system. In the 1950s, though, everything changed for people diagnosed with Addison's because of the formulation of an oral analog of cortisol that could be taken to replace the hormone that the adrenals were not producing. Replacements for aldosterone followed, and while Addison's was not cured, patients with the disease could at least live a normal life. As a side note, and this will be especially of interest to those of you who love the esoteric as much as I do, one of the most famous first beneficiaries of the new treatment of Addison's disease was John F. Kennedy. JFK was diagnosed in the late 40s with Addison's and was chronically ill until prednisone became available in the early 1950s. During the first televised presidential debate in 1959, a healthy, tanned, and fit-appearing Kennedy trounced a pale and sweating Vice President Richard Nixon. Historians and physicians have commented that Kennedy's appearance was most certainly a side effect of both of his illness and his treatment. But back to the issue at hand. As we have seen, the adrenals are of vital importance to life, and though they can fail, when they do it is uniformly fatal if not treated. So what is this adrenal fatigue business? Can the glands get tired? In 1998, chiropractor and naturopath James Wilson was the first to coin the term adrenal fatigue. And, as is common of practitioners in both of these fields, he did so without any evidence of science to support him at all. 
Not one to be troubled by the absence of supporting facts, Wilson came up with a questionnaire to help people self-identify as those who would need his help being treated for his new disease. According to him, if you have any of the following, you may have adrenal fatigue. Are you tired, and is that fatigue not generally relieved by sleep? Do you have trouble getting up in the morning? Do you get low energy, moody, or foggy if you don't eat regularly? Do you feel worse if you miss a meal? Do you need salty or sweet snacks or caffeine to keep going? Do you eat lots of fruit? Are you feeling run down and stressed? Do your muscles sometimes feel weaker than they should? Are you struggling to keep up with life's daily demands? Can you not bounce back from stress or illness? Are you suffering from a decreased sex drive? Now, based on these questions, I can conclude the following. Adrenal fatigue is either the most prevalent disease in the world, affecting single moms, shift workers, people with kids, people with jobs, people who are alive, people who eat fruit, seriously, what the hell was that about anyway, or adrenal fatigue is a completely bogus, made-up pseudo-illness propagated by people who are out to make a buck off of the millions of people who actually are just tired and stressed out from living their lives and want someone to tell them that there is something wrong with them rather than face the fact that sometimes... We all just get run down and just need to rest, but we just can't. Triathletes in particular are prone to all of these symptoms. Think about it. We're busy people. We have full-time jobs and families. And then we willingly subject ourselves to anywhere from 10 to 20 hours a week of training so we could participate in an event that can last as long as 17 hours. And we're surprised that we're tired? Look, just like all of you, I want nothing more than to get on my bike or in the pool or into my running shoes and feel ready to go every single time, full of youthful exuberance and energy. But the reality is that life is not always conducive to what we want to be doing. And sometimes our bodies will let us know that, hey, it's time for a break. This isn't a sign that your adrenals are fatigued, but that you as an entire person are, and it's normal, and it's okay. And where's my evidence? Well, I'm glad you asked. First, I'd like to reference the good Mr. Wilson's site that I will not dignify by listing in the show notes. His site is nothing more than a storefront for the innumerable supplements that he is hawking under the guise of curing people of the scourge that he, himself, has created. I looked at those supplements. They are impressive mostly because of how much they cost. For anywhere from 30 to $200, you can get his proprietary formula of vitamins. No joke here, vitamins, none of which, by the way, have anything to do with the actual adrenal glands or how they function. But how about real science? Well, again, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to begin and end with the single paper that has probably the best title of any paper that I've seen in a while. From Biomed Central Endocrine Disorders, this is a systematic review, that is to say a paper that analyzed all of the scientific articles that had been done previously looking into adrenal fatigue, and the title of the paper pretty much sums it up, Adrenal Fatigue Does Not Exist, a Systematic Review. This paper looked at 58 studies that themselves looked into the existence of adrenal fatigue. And I have to say, most of the time, I'm pretty unimpressed by the way scientific authors refuse to take a stand with their conclusions. Not so in this case. How's this for a conclusion? Quote, this systematic review proves that there is no substantiation that adrenal fatigue is an actual medical condition. Therefore, adrenal fatigue is still a myth. End quote. Look, I recognize that it can be frustrating to have a constellation of symptoms that your doctor can't give you an answer for. I also can see the significant benefit to having a diagnosis to latch onto in order to have something to attribute all that ails you. But there's a real danger in doing this. 
First and foremost, giving credibility to something that so clearly is not supported by science opens the door to being taken advantage of and in the end, still being in exactly the same boat, minus the hundreds of dollars you're out in pursuing your cure for something that doesn't exist. Second, by latching on to adrenal fatigue, you may be missing an opportunity to find out if something is really wrong and could actually be treated. Many of the features of adrenal fatigue could actually be because of depression or other medical illnesses. And if you spend too much time chasing supposed remedies for your made-up illness, you're wasting precious time that could have been spent identifying and treating your actual illness. There are many other ailments out there like adrenal fatigue. I would caution all of you to be wary before subscribing to the notion that you have any of them. The common features of all of these pseudo-diseases are that they have numerous vague and incredibly common symptoms so as to ensnare as many people as possible, their proponents will make claims that modern medicine is for some reason engaged in a massive cover-up to prevent the, quote, truth, end quote, they will push you to purchase some supplement or proprietary remedy that has no evidence to support its claims as the only viable cure for whatever it is that ails you, and then charge you an exorbitant sum to buy it. Don't get hoodwinked. Save your money, get some rest, and feel better. Do you have a question about something triathlon and health-related that you would like me to consider answering on the show? Send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. My guest this episode is Matt Legrand. Matt grew up in northern Alabama where he ran cross-country and track and field. In college, he ran at the Division I level and used his last year of eligibility at the University of Alabama during grad school where he studied marketing. As he was finishing grad school, he taught himself how to build websites and eventually built the Olympic Trials website in 2003. After working for a variety of technology companies, he started his own software consulting business focusing on iOS mobile applications. He's currently training for his fourth full Ironman, although it will be his first in his new age group of 40 to 44-year-old men, and he has a PR of 955, so watch out, guys, if you're in that age group. If that wasn't enough, he recently started a YouTube channel to inspire athletes and promote triathlon. He also is part of a cycling podcast called The Dialed Podcast, in which there are weekly roundtable discussions regarding all things cycling, and he tries to sneak in as much triathlon content as possible. For today, though, I'm happy to say that he has agreed to join me and talk about how new participants to triathlon can negotiate some of the barriers to entry. Welcome, Matt. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Matt, um, when uh, we think about barriers to entry to triathlon, what are some of those things that you consider? Oh, man. So <clears throat> there's there's quite a few. Uh, all of us that have been doing triathlon, a lot of your listeners probably have been doing triathlon you know, they don't hesitate to sign up for a race and, and hop in. And um, they don't think about some of the fears that people that are new to the sport might really face. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, um, fears of open water swimming, uh, cost of the events, you know, and, and just the opportunity costs of, of doing other potential events. You know, there's there's so much popularity out there with, you know, mud runs and color runs and, um just crazy events like that, relay events. I can go on and on, but uh, I think that there's there's a lot facing our sport right now as far as difficulties. And uh, you mentioned the YouTube channel in the intro, and one of the you know goals of that is just to kind of help educate people on like what the sport is, and you know maybe kind of taking that next step of of considering signing up for a triathlon. Somebody who thinks they lack the money or the fitness or the equipment or the skills, 
How do they get themselves into the sport with any kind of confidence? Well, <clears throat> the financial side of things, I think, is a serious, like, I think it's a serious problem. I made um, a video quite a while back, like one of the first videos I did, and it was called like triathlon on the cheap. And I kind of like jokingly go through all these, you know, like the cheapest things that you could find, like, you know, shopping on Craigslist for a bike and, you know, picking up, um, you know, swimsuits and goggles and things like that. I think I was like, don't even wear, you know, a tri suit, like just wear your jammers. Like, and I still ended up with a cost of like about a thousand dollars just to do a triathlon. And that was not, you know, I don't know if that was counting like the event fee or not, but it was, you know, at first I kind of laughed like, yeah, it's an expensive sport. And then I started to think about it and I was like, that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, it's, it's really, um, it's unfortunate. And so right now, like what I usually tell people at this point is, you know, borrow a bike, if it's a mountain bike, that's okay. Like whatever bike you can have that will kind of get you through there. Cause that's the, one of the biggest ticket items. Um, and see if you like the sport, you know, do a couple of triathlons, maybe a whole summer of triathlons, you know, two or three races and see if you like the sport before you go and you start spending, you know, that ridiculous amount of money. Um, because there are other opportunities for people and, you know, and if triathlons not for someone, then, you know, I want them to kind of like not have wasted a thousand dollars. It's a lot of money. I, I agree. Uh, I, I I think with respect to entry to the sport as a sort of full time thing, I I've looked around and a thousand dollars seems to be the basement uh, sort of level yeah. entry. Um, that's not totally unreasonable when you consider right. things like skiing. Skiing is going to set you back about the same, even if you buy used equipment. Uh, once you figure in clothing and a ski pass yep. and everything else, I mean, you you are you're looking at a similar price to get in to a lot of different sports. I think the element that you raise that is unique to triathlon is the fear of not being able to do the three sports. And that begins really with the swim. I think a lot of people coming to the sport are very worried about the swim. So what do you tell people about that? Well, so here's what I usually tell people is that they should be actually a bit worried about the swim. It It is concerning. Um, if you have not practiced swimming at all and you go out and you're, you know, you either rented a wetsuit or purchased a wetsuit, uh, it's a constricting feeling and you're in the open water and you're potentially, you know, surrounded by a whole bunch of swimmers and it's, it's somewhat intimidating. And so, um, just like with anything else that is a little bit scary, like your best way to prepare is to practice. And I, I actually, I didn't mention this in, you know, the introduction, but I actually put on like an open water swim series that's completely free in, in the area that I live in, which is kind of like the, the greater um, Portland, Oregon area. I live just north of Portland. And so anyone that wants to come and swim and practice open water swimming, uh, we do have some timed events and things like that. And it's, just, but, but the whole point of it is just like, hey, come get used to the water. Uh, because we don't want people to have a panic attack when they go out there and they, you know, they start racing. Yeah, I agree with you. And Ironman has done a great job with their whole swim start uh, program to try and emphasize yes. the importance of, you know, make sure you show up at your race. It's not the first time you swam in open water. You don't right. want to have that experience. And here in Denver, we have many uh, areas and many events that are similar. There's uh, several uh, um uh, uh, what is it? Stroke and dash or a swim and dash yeah. or a series, uh, up in Boulder. Uh, there's uh, grant ranch has uh, open water swimming throughout the spring and summer. So, uh, 
wherever people are, they can usually find access to open water swim events, and that's an excellent way to get comfortable with that part of it. So, Jeff, do you practice open water swimming in the when the weather permits? I used to. I don't anymore simply because uh, it's a little bit harder to fit into my schedule and also I, because yeah. uh, I've had – at this point, I've done well over 40 events, so right. I feel pretty comfortable in the open water. It's, it's something yeah. that, uh, you know, every year when I get to my first race, it's, to, you know, it's still something that yeah. uh, takes getting used to. But at this point, it's not a surprise anymore. So you do most of your swimming in the pool? Almost exclusively. When I go on vacation with my family, if we're at a place where I can do open water swimming, I I take advantage of that. But to make it part of my training at home is difficult just because the timing just so rarely meshes up with my availability. Right. I mean, early morning, right? Like you don't want to go out and be on the open water or you don't want to be out on the open water by yourself. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and, uh, the events that happen around here tend to be, they're very convenient. I mean, they they tend to be multiple times a week, but they tend to be around six o'clock when I need to be home with my kids. Yes. Now you have two girls, right? I have two girls and one boy. So uh, yeah, twins, twins, and then an older girl. And then um, some of them do gymnastics, is that right? Correct, yeah. I have two, uh, two gymnasts, a 13-year-old and a 9-year-old, both doing gymnastics. Now, we're talking about like the kind of price of entry to triathlon. How does that compare to a sport like gymnastics? <laughs> well, <laughs> that depends on the parent. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, yes. – it, gymnastics was a world that I had no familiarity with until our girls started doing it. And uh, – I mean, in terms of the equipment needed, uh, I mean, you, yeah. you don't have to spend anything because it's all at the gym. Right. But uh, then once you start getting into coaching and private lessons, yeah. and then all of a sudden I notice we have a, uh, a practice beam and a practice bar in my basement. And those, weren't, those weren't free. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, you could definitely and, – and, and we're – very, you know, we, we do not show up at gymnastics with the notion that our daughters are going to be NCAA, you know, right. scholarship bound. But I could tell you that when we go to our girls' meets, it is evident to us that, you know, probably half the parents there really do believe that their kids are in it to win it and in it to go to the NCAA. And so they're investing a lot more time and a lot more money. Right. So it could be, you could spend as much as you want. I think uh, we, uh, you know, we still spend quite a bit. My, my son is a ski, my, actually all my kids ski. So skiing is That's significantly expensive. more expensive. Yes. Yeah. It's more similar to triathlon in that there's more equipment. And I grew up running where it was like, slap on a pair of shoes and go and you know you kind of compete in high school which is affordable and so to do triathlon was a real kind of like wake up call like wow you just you know just remembering all the stuff that you have to have for each race was yeah just it was crazy yeah my, my wife did gymnastics at that ncaa level you know she she did gymnastics for alabama and uh it's you know, and now we have kids, we have three boys and, you know, and the thought was like, okay, do you, you know, do you think they should do gymnastics? And she's like, no, no. And, uh, they're already too old. Like my oldest is only eight years old. And she's like, no, they're already too old to really kind of do gymnastics and be good at it. It's like, you really have to invest like their whole childhood in the sport to have them go that far in gymnastics, which 
it's a pretty big sacrifice. Oh, yeah. And I grew up playing hockey and yeah. uh, coming from Canada. And I mean, hockey was the same thing. You had to start when you were six. And oh. it was a huge investment in time, money. And I mean, every year you had to turn over the equipment, which was not inexpensive. So yeah, I think triathlon, you know, we think of triathlon as an expensive sport. But in context, it's not necessarily that much more expensive than other sports. The difference is... I think, uh, you know, you're spending a certain amount of money on a wetsuit, which you really only use occasionally. Uh, You're spending money on things that you're not entirely convinced that, you know, you have to buy the stuff up front without actually knowing you're going to like the sport. I remember when I got into triathlon, I did so... I bought all of the equipment. I did my first race and I hated every second of it. And I thought as I was finishing the run, all I kept thinking was, how can I sell everything and recoup some of my costs? And and fortunately, I finished the race and and realized what I had accomplished and and started thinking back on some of the mistakes I had made. And before I knew it, I actually realized, gosh, I really like this. I kind of want to get back and do this better. And, you know, it kind of, you know, went from there. So... You know, and I looked online yesterday knowing we were going to have this conversation, and, and Nitro, the, the store in San Diego, which really was yeah. one of the focal places where, where triathlon started, they still offer these triathlon packages, and they have a very, very yep. nice you know beginner triathlon package for a 1000 bucks. Gets you on a bike, yep. gets you the helmet, gets you the bike shoes, gets you a wetsuit. And that's all new stuff, nothing used. That's a great deal. Yeah, all brand new. And uh, you can bump it up to like higher-end stuff if you really want, but you know, for a beginner triathlon, Athlete, I think, uh, you know, everything that they're offering, that's the way to go. And, you know, it brings me to another question I was going to ask you, <clears throat> because there are so many things marketed to triathletes that supposedly, yeah. you know, is out there to make them faster or better or whatever. And I know when I began... That was a trap I fell into all the time. You know, you look at the glossy magazines, you look at their buyer guides, and it's full of stuff. And it's like, you know, you become wrapped up very quickly. And not to mention the first time you show up at a race and it's like your your jaw is hanging because you're looking at all the fancy stuff everyone has. So what's your advice for dealing with the slick marketing of manufacturers? and, And what few things should the new triathlete actually invest in? Well, I mean, it's that's that's a daunting question. I mean, there, like you said, there is an absolute like plethora of places for you to spend your money, you know, and and that's you know always the case. There's there's no lack of spots to spend money, um, and so what you really want to do is look critically at kind of each purchase, um, you know. In in particular, I, I found that the biking stuff is where to, you know there's money to be spent everywhere, obviously, um, but I feel like. Investing in a decent pair, you know, a decent pair of shoes is is somewhat worth it. Um, You would be surprised to realize, like, the amount of money that you can spend, you know, dialing in the bike and really kind of, you know, spending thousands of dollars to gain, you know, just a mile an hour faster on the bike, you know, and that's very, very commonplace in our sport. Uh, And it's it's concerning for sure because you know. you look at these bikes and things like that and all this money that people have spent and it's just absolutely, you know, it's, it's, and it can be a bit of a turnoff to the sport. Um, and there's so many places where you can actually spend, you know, way less money and actually end up with just as big of rewards. Um, 
you know, I think I made a video. One of the first videos I made was like, hey, you know, if you change out the types of tubes that are, you know, the inner tubes that are inside your wheels, like you can actually gain, you know, three to four watts per wheel, you know, just by using like latex tubes as opposed to like butyl tubes or something like that. And there's these little things like that that's like, oh, that costs you 10 bucks. So there are places where you can invest money and and really kind of actually have some pretty advantageous results for, you know, each dollar spent. Um, the big flashy purchases, you know, I'm thinking like, um, fast bikes are very expensive. Fast wheels are very expensive. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I would suggest for people to kind of like put off and wait, you know, like if you're going to do an Ironman in three or four years and, you know, you know that like financially that, that, that point, you know, it might make sense. Um, go ahead and wait because there are always going to be new technologies coming out. There's always going to be a faster bike that will come out. Uh, and so, you know, don't jump right into the sport and spend an ungodly amount of money because, you know, there are bikes, I promise you, that are, are $15,000. You can spend a lot of money in the sport. Uh, no kidding. I think also when I think about spending money, I think about the different stages that an athlete is in the sport. Like for a newbie, there's going to be yep. a big upfront cost to get started, but that money needs to be spent smart. Like I, I tell everybody who's starting, whenever anybody comes to me for advice on a bike, I yep. say, don't even talk to me about a bike until you get a bike fit. And, yep. uh, you know, I mean, you could spend 15,000 bucks on a bike, but if the bike doesn't fit you properly, then you might as well right. have spent nothing because that's 15,000 bucks out the window. You're going to spend years trying to get that bike to fit you properly and you're going to, you know, you're going to regret you may, it. Yeah. You may still fail. Right. So right. the right. other big part of the bike fit, you know, is, is, you know, that's an upfront cost that is, you know, it doesn't seem logical because you're talking about a fit or whatever. You can do a fit before you actually purchase your bike, which is really handy. Um, actually did that uh, when I kind of first signed up for an Ironman and I knew I was going to be spending more time on the bike. I think that was a good purchase. Um, and, and keep in mind, like, the person on top of the bike is going to be 70% of the drag, right? So, you know, you can get a faster bike, you can get a bike that has a little bit better aerodynamics that will be faster. But you on the bike is going to be the biggest part of the drag equation, right? So, you know, a better bike fit is really going to be a, a very strong investment. Right. And that's, that's kind of where I, I get back to that idea of the different sort of like levels of where the costs need to be. So you have your upfront costs, you have your costs to get better, and you have your costs to get faster. And to me, those need to be balanced. And to me, you know, your initial costs and your initial expenditures in the sport need to be all about getting yourself to be the best athlete possible before you start worrying about these little marginal gain things, Absolutely. which cost so much money and give you really much less. And, you know, I always tell people, if you have, you know, a limited budget, put that money towards things like a fit, a coach, eventually yep. a power meter because that will give you data that you yes. can really you know build off of and then you could start thinking about other things that are really luxuries but will give you yeah. those other marginal gains absolutely yeah yeah and you mentioned power meter i'm a big believer in, in power meter training on the bike it was i think it was pretty you know in my experience it was one of those tools that i could use to really kind of hone in my workouts and things like that um, to make me a better athlete. And I improved a lot basically just by doing workouts based on power. Uh, but it is, I mean, especially when I bought my first power meter, it was a big expense. Um, and 
you know, for anyone that's listening, you know, it's not a, it's not a need to have, it's a, it's a luxury tool for sure. You can get faster if you just go ride your bike. You know, if you go ride uphill, you will get faster. So, um, there's opportunities for you to spend money. Absolutely. Uh, but just being, I think a little bit critical and really looking at kind of where, you know, these dollars are going to help you, um, kind of term. I think is, is, it's a pretty wise, you know, use of your time. Yeah, agreed. Power meter to me is, as I said, more of a later expenditure, but it yep. will help you get better uh, later on as you're uh, moving into the sport and really maturing. Uh, and especially now that they've become so much have, more affordable. They have. Yeah, you can you can probably spend, you know, in that three to five hundred dollar range and get a good power meter. Um, you can look at the there's like left, right power meters, you know, um, dual power meters versus just like single leg only. And what they do with a single leg only is they take your power from your left foot and they double it. And that's actually pretty okay. You yeah, know? Like, for most um, people, it's, yeah. it's right there. Yeah. yeah. In your experience, what are the common mistakes that you see newbies in the sport make that results in them quitting? So I think one of those, you know, newbie mistakes that you'll see people kind of come into the sport and, you know, hopefully they haven't invested a whole bunch of money or whatever it is, but, um, they go in the swim and they, the, the mistake that I often see is just like people going out too hard, even in a sprint triathlon. If you're new to the sport, we're still talking, you know, at least over 30, 30, probably 40 minutes of, of hard work. Um, I would say I'm guessing that's minimum, you know, for a very, very short race. Uh, more likely, it's probably over an hour. So you can definitely swim too hard when you go out in the, in the water. Um, I see people go out really hard in the water and then really just not enjoy the rest of the swim. And then in particular, I see people bike extremely hard. And then the result of that is that their run is not enjoyable. So people that are new to the sport, you know, what I've seen people do is just really kind of take the swim and the bike and go way too hard and just be miserable on the run. And um, I think we've all done it. It's one of those, you know, potential like learning experiences. Hey, you know, I, I'm going to have to back off or else I'm not going to be able to run to my full potential. Uh, but in particular, I see new people that really, you know, don't have a feel for, you know, endurance and how much time is actually involved. They hear sprint and they're thinking like, I got to crush the transition and then I've got to get going through here. And I've, I've just got to hit all of these things like full gas. And I'm not sure you do. I think you can swim really well when you swim relaxed. I think you can bike really well when you bike relaxed. And I think that sets you up for a good run. And that's just my personal opinion. Um, and I've, I've just seen a lot of people kind of make that mistake. Yeah, uh, same here. I, I made that same mistake myself in yeah. my first race, which is why I hated it so much. But Yeah, and I just remember thinking like, okay, you know, I'm a good runner. I have this running background, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll get off the bike and maybe I'll run, you know, 16, 17 minutes for the 5K. And I remember, and this is my first triathlon, it was a sprint, and I got off the bike and I started running and my legs felt horrible. And I'm sure, you know, Jeff, you same thing for everyone else, right? And it's like, I remember, I think I was around 20 minutes, which some of your listeners can be like, wow, that's so fast. And some of your listeners can be like, wow, that's so slow. Uh, but I was just, I was like, wow, that was horrible. I thought, I'm, you know, same as you. I'm like, this is not good. Like, I need to figure this out, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, you do eventually. And, and, you know, in your mind, you're thinking like, I need to go longer. I need to be able to have better endurance for this and this. And it just takes time to figure some of these things out. Right. 
One, one last question to finish off the conversation. How, how should someone new to the sport approach training so as to minimize the likelihood of injury or other setbacks, which is often a concern for a beginner triathlete? There's a couple of things that I think new um, triathletes should consider. And one of them is, you know, a bit of a mentor or a coach. Um, potentially a, a training group could help you in this regard. Uh, but a coach would be like the most ideal situation where you have someone watching your training, making sure you're not doing too much, um, making sure, I mean, if you can get in a situation where someone can watch your swim a little bit or um, potentially have some feedback on your swim stroke. So you could do that via like videotape, um, but you could have someone on deck as well uh, watching your swim stroke. Some of these things like that can really help you avoid injury and overtraining. Uh, I've seen most injuries on the running side of things. um, And there's, there's a, you know, slew of different reasons why that could be right. You know, uh, you could be 40, 50 years old and jumping into a sport that's very difficult and you could be increasing your volume too much. Um, so there's, you know, that can lead to a ton of different things, tons of different muscle balance, um, issues for sure. When you've been sitting at your desk for a long time and you go out and you try to tackle a sport, uh, and a coach can help you navigate some of those issues for sure. So that's going to be one recommendation for sure. Um, a triathlon club and things like that, it's a little less um, hands-on, but you may be able to pick up some tips and things like that that really could help you uh, just from joining a club. Some of those clubs, you know, they don't cost very much, uh, but you can really learn a lot just from kind of chatting with people. So that would be a nice, easy recommendation. Um, you know, there's there's other things too, like a, a master swim programs and things like that, where you potentially could have a coach on deck that might be able to kind of point you in the right direction. You know, if you're if you're swimming and your head is up and your legs are sinking and, you know, sometimes these are just quick, easy fixes that someone can look at your stroke and see like, hey, you're going to swim a lot faster really, really quickly. And your shoulders aren't going to be hurting um, quite as much because you're just, you know, you just need to change a couple of things. Matt Legrand is uh, part of a cycling podcast called The Dialed Podcast. He is an Ironman triathlete preparing for his fourth Ironman this summer in Whistler, Canada. And he joined me today from right near Portland, Oregon. Thanks so much for being here, Matt. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. You like to try, you love to travel, and if you're really lucky, you get to do both once or twice a year. But how do you know where the best places are to go for a race? Ironman and 70.3 races now span the globe. Many can be found in some pretty amazing places to race and visit. But in the absence of any dedicated travel guides, how is a busy triathlete to decide? Fortunately, the TriDoc podcast is here to help. In France, a popular guidebook is called Le Routard. Routard means hitchhiker. And while I don't advocate that you hitch to any of your races, the TriDoc Routard aims to provide a little insight into some of the races that many triathletes have long considered potentially traveling to, both here in North America or elsewhere around the globe. For today's destination, we're going to consider Ironman Maryland that takes place in Cambridge, Maryland in September every year and is a very popular race. We're discussing it now because it's also the site of the Eagleman 70.3 race in June. Joining me to give us the inside scoop on the race and provide some details on the destination and logistics is Sean Hale from Houston, Texas. Sean placed fourth in his age group at Ironman Maryland last year and secured himself a slot to the World Championships in Kona this coming October. He also has a couple of age group wins at the 70.3 distance over the last couple of years and is a member of Team Everyman Jack. Welcome, Sean. 
Thanks, Jeff. So when we think about Ironman Maryland, specifically the Ironman distance, uh, let's think first about this race for someone who might be out there still on the fence. Is this one of these that you got to sign up for quick or is this one that kind of stays open till the very end? So this race uh, has kind of a sketchy history with weather. Um, it has a propensity to flood, and there was a hurricane one year where they rescheduled it for, I think, two weeks later. Um, I think before those events, it was a very popular race because it's very flat and fast. Um, but since then, uh, I don't, it hasn't been as popular. People are afraid they're not going to get their, their full-distance race in and uh, – as of last year, um, I know I saw locals that signed up the week of the race. So um, at this point, I don't think you need to sign up very far out. Okay, well, that's good if you're a, a last-minute type, if maybe you uh, aren't sure about your fitness going in. I know that uh, for Eagle Man, that still remains quite popular, although uh, when I checked on the website, that one, too, is still open, and that race takes place in June. Uh, what about travel and gear transportation considerations? How did you get there? How, uh, where do people fly into? Uh, do they need a car? That kind of thing. Um, it's pretty good from that perspective because it's across the bay from um, Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. So you can fly into either of those cities and rent a car and drive across the bridge. There's a toll bridge. Um, it's about an hour and a half, two hours drive with no traffic from either of those. I think... Uh, DWI is a little bit closer, um, but whenever we made the trip, there was quite a bit of uh, traffic. But really, it's pretty easy to get into. Um, I'd say from that perspective, it's a pretty good race. And uh, in terms of where to stay, uh, is there a lot of lodging in Cambridge itself? Uh, do people tend to stay in the like guest in sorry the host hotel or, or what what was the accommodation selection like? That's where this race may be not the best. Um, it's a very small town. Um, just I guess some history on Cambridge. It's uh, on the Eastern Shore region, um, on the bank of the Choptank River, uh, which feeds into Chesapeake Bay. Um, it was settled in 684, so it's very old. All like a farming community. Um, and there's not, I think there's maybe a handful of, you know, budget or, you know, regularly priced hotels like a Holiday Inn or such. And those, those fill up way in advance. So if you want to do this race on the cheaper side, you need to sign up well in advance and try and book one of those hotels. Unless you're okay with, uh, you know, staying in somebody's guest room via Airbnb, um, there's there's quite a few of those, and you can rent up to a room all the way up to a full house. The host hotel is actually a Grand Hyatt, and it's super nice, but it's like $450 a night. So um, I ended up uh, registering for this late, race late because I actually transferred from Ironman, Texas, due to injury. And I ended up just going with the host hotel at the Grand Hyatt because it seemed like the easiest thing to do, even though it was more expensive. And it looks like, like you were saying, small race, uh, 1,800 athletes uh, or 1,750 athletes completed it last right. year. So that is on the small side for uh, an Ironman, especially one that used to be, as you said, quite popular. Right. It's, so, it's a, uh, easier we'll, course, right? <laughs> Whenever you have the full thing anyways. Yeah. When did you get there and when would you suggest that people get there uh, with relation to the race? How far? So this is one of the Saturday Ironmans. Um, which could pose a problem for some people if they're, you know, have trouble getting time off. But 
One excellent thing about this race is they offer a bib mailing option for $30 um, to where you don't have to do athlete check-in on Thursday. You can do athlete check-in on Friday right before you check your in and they mail you your run gear bag and your bike gear bag and you can have all those packed up before you show up to check in and check all your gear. Um, I, I, you know, I wonder why they don't do that more do often. That, that, that has always struck me. Some races don't do it because they've promised the local economy a certain number of, you know, hotel stays or whatever. And I think that's part of it. But but it's a, I, I loved it. It was huge. And I mean, I even got there on Thursday and I would have had time to go check in on Thursday, but it was super nice not to have to rush and do that or worry about, you know, if my flight, if I was going to miss a connection or anything like that, you know, to not have that stress was super nice. All right. So you've alluded to the fact that this is a fast race and I know it is for the 70.3 as well, even though the courses don't share a lot in common. Uh, but let's talk about uh, the courses uh one discipline at a time. Let's, let's start with the swim. So you mentioned that it's a, a river swim, That's right? right. It's a Burkish river swim. So you're dealing with currents. Um, it's the, I, I can't speak to the 70.3 um, for the late September one. I think it's pretty much wetsuit legal every time. The week of, I think there was some concern, but it was, it was easily under, under the temp. So um, it's a rolling start. Uh, it was a two lap swim and they actually, timing mat suspended over two buoys in the water you had to swim through uh, to start your second lap so the second lap for me was very congested um, but overall pretty good swim nice that you don't have to exit the water and run on the beach you just continue right. swimming that was nice i thought that was pretty cool the uh, 70.3 race looks to be pretty much the one, same it's just yeah. one lap yeah. and of course then uh, nothing to swim over you just exit the water right. at the end of that lap and the currents uh, are the currents uh, which direction are they in your favor uh, when are you fighting I them? think well I think it depends on how much um, rainfall they've gotten if you've got much river current but you have tidal currents as well and I think that's mainly what we saw that morning and so um, it really depends on the what time the tides are moving that day in what direction, you know, because that can vary um, depending on which tides are going on at the time. Um, but it did seem to slow the swim down several minutes for most of the people that I looked oh, at. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And uh, how about the sun? Was that a factor? Um, I don't remember it being a factor. Um, you do swim. I guess the sun... Whenever you first enter the water, that, that first straightaway would have been kind of into the sun, but it wasn't terrible because you, as you're rolling in, you're, you're looking straight at that, that buoy, and you can kind of look at the, the landmarks behind it and get a pretty good idea where you need to be swimming. Okay, so sighting after that, and the sun didn't yeah, really get no. in. Uh, it was ideal no because I think you've probably had races where the sun may not be in your face on the first stretch, and then you make a turn, and then you can't see anything. At least this was you were out of the water yeah. looking into the sun, and you could kind of figure out your landmarks and get going in the right direction. And by the time you had the second lap, you'd already done it once. So you kind of knew where you were going. Uh, T1, anything uh, remarkable so about T1? this race, um, I haven't done a lot of full Ironmans, um, so I don't know if they're all like this, but this race had a split transition and finish line area. So this one park was just dedicated to transition, and it was probably the best transition I've ever seen. I mean, it was... It was laid out like assembly line style. Um, so you get out, you get wetsuit stripped, you go straight to where your, your bike bag is, and then you go straight into the change tent. 
and you come out of the change tent and you run straight past your run gear bag and you go grab your bike and you run out. So it was just all in line and it was, it was super quick. Um, I guess just one tip, I always put a, a distinctive ribbon or something on my bags and, um, it never fails. I'm yelling at my number to the volunteers as I'm approaching, but, um, I'll always end up finding the bag and grabbing it before anybody else. So just a little tip for everybody. Uh, okay. Let's talk about the bike course. You mentioned again, that it's fast. Uh, I have heard in the past that this is a notoriously windy course. Did you experience it? It wasn't that? terribly windy that day. Um, but yes, it's, it's flat farmland. It's on the coast. Anybody familiar with coastal areas, uh, if the weather says it's going to be a 10 mile an hour wind, it's actually a 20 mile an hour wind. Um, it was, it was cool that morning. Uh, so when we got on the bike, it was pretty cold. Um, well for me anyways, it was like 60 degrees, I think, <laughs> but it was cold, um, coming from Texas. Um, and then as the, as the day, I think this is common, but as the day got on, the winds kind of picked up a little bit. And then on the way back into town, it was kind of strong, but as far as the route, um, like I mentioned earlier, they have problems with flooding in the area because it's so flat. And uh, if you get a high tide from from winds or whatever reason, you can have flooding. And they actually had some flooding last year as well, but they changed the the bike course the day before, and we were able to able to still get to 112 miles out of it. Um, but for us, we you kind of bob and weave to get out of the the town area, and then there was a an out and back section that was maybe I don't know five ten miles. And then you get back into, and you do two loops um, through farmland. It was gorgeous. I thought it was a really pretty bike ride. The roads were really nice, smooth asphalt. Um, And then once you finish the second loop, you kind of go back into town. Now, with two loops, there's always the worry about congestion and drafting. Did you see a lot of that? Was that a problem? Um, So, I mean... Luckily, I'm a faster swimmer, so the first lap, I mean, I guess I had five people pass me the whole race, and I never really passed anybody that was, I think, only one person that beat me in the race swam faster than me, so I was pretty all alone for the most part until the second lap where it was very congested. Um, I did see some groups, but there was nothing like Ironman, Texas, Peloton-like or anything like that. And uh, in terms of the course being changed, was it still pretty well laid out with signage? There wasn't any confusion? Yeah, no. I mean, like I said before, I was all alone sometimes, so I was worried I was maybe off course. But that was never that actually an issue, and, and all the turns were very well marked. And um, I, think, I think one issue, um, thinking back on it now, one issue with that late change was um, on the back side of the loop, there was, there was a long stretch without an aid station. I was really wanting some water at one point, and there was there was no aid station for a while. And I think that was just maybe a, a result of them changing the course in the last minute. Let's talk about the run. Uh, did you uh, think the run course was a good one? Was it? Fair? I mean, I loved it. Difficult. I think I think the, the town is pretty. It's on the water. Um, everything's you know green. There's maybe some trees starting to change colors a little bit. Um, there's beautiful old houses. Uh, it's you know, most of the families were out in their yards partying while the Ironman was going on. Um, had a good vibe. Once again, very flat. <laughs> um, I guess the only part that's not good uh, is that it's a two and a half loop, but really it's like a series of out and backs. There's no looping. It's just you go out of transition, you go, you do an eight mile out and back to the west, and then you come back by transition and you do a 
two and a half mile out and back the other direction. And then you do that whole thing again. <laughs> and then you do a shorter out and back on the last to make it two and a half instead. Um, but I guess that ends up with more crowd support, you know, doing it that way. So that's nice. And they don't have to shut us as many roads down but I, I loved it i was having a blast until about mile 21 to be honest with you i think that is pretty much the same for most people who <laughs> yeah. do an iron man no matter what the yeah. course is like so <laughs> you're not alone there uh all right well, let's talk about just sort of overall impressions what was the crowd support like uh you know what was your sort of overall impression of the day i mean i thought it was a great race a great place for an iron man i think it's probably a great 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 place for 70.3 as well the, the town seems to support it and it's got that you know small town feel but it has you know um, nice areas where you can walk around there's like a brew pub and uh, a few other restaurants that you can walk around and uh, enjoy the town it's pretty um i don't know i, I enjoyed it a lot if it wasn't so far away i'd probably do the race again all right. Well, let's uh, let's just look back at some previous years for people to get a sense. Uh, the weather uh, for Ironman Maryland in the past has uh, been pretty cool. Uh, last year, as you mentioned, it was uh, you know the low in the morning was sixty one Fahrenheit and it maxed out at seventy seven. Uh, pretty low winds, at least that's what's reported. Uh, it does tend to you know it can get warm. Uh, in two thousand seventeen, the high was eighty. Uh, although most uh, most of the time, the reported high for the race tends to be in the mid to high seventies. And if we look at the seventy point three race that takes place in uh, June, uh, the weather tends to be warmer. Uh, the average high over the past several years has been high 80s, uh, as high as 90 degrees back in 2016, and the low tends to be about 70 degrees. A um, little more reliable weather in the uh, spring for the Eagleman 70.3 race in terms of uh, not as much rain, although it did rain last year. Uh, and then uh, for the Ironman, as you said, uh, you know, because of the potential impact of hurricanes, there is a uh, little more variability in terms of what to expect uh, with uh, the possibility of rain. So, Sean, overall, is this a race you'd recommend? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would add to um, the 70.3, I had a friend do it. And it says 90, but it's a very humid area. So apparently that race can be pretty brutal. And uh, whenever I was, you know, taking some notes down um, for this chat, I noticed that Cambridge, Maryland is actually classified as a humid subtropical climate. So if you're doing the Eagle Man race, be prepared to sweat a lot. All right. That's uh, good information. Sean Hale uh, finished fourth in his age group last year at Ironman Maryland. Uh, he will be at Kona this year. Congratulations for that. And he is a member of Team Everyman Jack. Thanks for joining me today for the first ever episode of the TriDoc Routard and our discussion of Ironman Maryland and Ironman 70.3 Eagleman. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I hope that helps some people out. And that brings me to the end of this episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed getting it to you. If you have feedback on anything that you heard or a question for me to consider answering on future episodes, please write me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. And don't forget to leave a rating and a review wherever you download the show. Links to all the science and the listener question, as well as to everything I discussed on the show, can be found in the show notes 
at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. There, you can also find links to my Twitter and Instagram accounts, where I hope you'll give me a follow. The music heard at the beginning and end of the show is Radio by The Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you will go visit to give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will return soon with another triathlon-related health question for me to answer, an interview with bike fitter, coach, and the founder of 51 Speed Shop, Matt Steinmetz, and another episode of the Triathlete Retard. Until then, I'm Jeff Sankoff. Train hard, train healthy.